You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. All right, so if you've ever wondered why we're here, why are we doing this? Why, why are we here on a Sunday morning? I mean, if many of you are like me, and you've just always done this. Like, I grew up doing this. I, I grew up, I got up earlier than I wanted to, I got more dressed up than I wanted to, and then I came and I gathered together with some people that I don't normally spend time with, and we sang, and then we listened to a guy preach, and then we sang some more, and then we went and ate. And then we kind of got on with, uh, with regular life. So some of you are probably in that category. It's just, this is what you've always done. Others of you, maybe you're new to this whole thing, and the, the singing, and the listening, and the singing, maybe you're still not used to that, okay? So... If that's you this morning, if you're in the category of, I've always done this and I don't know why, or I'm new to this and I wonder why you do these things, then you have come to CBC at a good time, because we are studying uh, the book of First Timothy. Uh, the book of First Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy who was pastoring in Ephesus, and, and Paul states his purpose We've, uh, we've looked at this a couple of weeks in a row, but just to be clear, he states his purpose, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, all right? So we've titled this sermon, House Rules, and that's what we're doing. We're just kind of looking at, you know, what are we supposed to do when we gather together as the church? And so since we're talking about that, I want to just be clear about a few things, all right? Number one, this building is not the church, all right? I know most of you know that, but let's just make sure that we're clear on that. This, this building is not the church. When I was growing up, my grandmother used to tell me, don't run in God's house. And that was really confusing to me, right? I, and because we actually, I, I went to Calvary, and there's a gym, and I'm like, which part of God's house, you know, can the running happen in? Which can it not happen in? Does, does he live in here specifically? But, but the truth is, and, and I know most of you know this, but just to be clear, God, uh, God's church, the church is people. We are people. We are the church. So this building is not the church, which is why we try to avoid things, saying things like, are you coming to church? Like a better way to say that would be, are you gathering with the church on Sunday morning? Because the church is something we may meet together at a, at a specific location, but the truth is, Heaven forbid, if this building were to burn down this week, CBC, the body, would still be very much alive, all right? So just, just clarifying some of these things, the church is not a building but a body. And so this year we've heard over and over again, uh, Bill has been saying to us, be the church, be the church, be the people of God. We are to be representatives of Jesus Christ in the places where we live. So we gather together in here on Sunday mornings and then we scatter out to go out to where we live to be the church uh, in, in the places where God has us. One of the things that I know CBC has been very committed to from the beginning is that these gatherings would not be different from our normal lives. That's, that's something Bill says all the time and, it, and it's something that I'm 100% behind. We, we don't come in here and try to look better or to, to be more pious than we normally are. Our worship gatherings, our corporate worship is where we come together 
And we, we are ourselves with each other as we corporately worship God. So, so we, we, we don't sing obscure songs. We don't have sermons and, 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 and speeches that are irrelevant to everyday life. So we believe that Jesus Christ is worth worshiping every day, right? So, so this is normal life for us. We're, just, we're doing what we normally do together on Sunday morning. We do what, what we would normally do separately, we gather together to do today. We also believe that the Bible is always relevant. The Bible is relevant every day. We constantly want to be having Bible intake so that we can do what it says and please God. And so, again, today is just an extension of that. We're opening the scriptures to find out what they say and just let that be an extension of our regular lives. And we also know that we should always be concerned to encourage and to build up one another. So we're gathering here again because we want to gather together and encourage and build up one another. So finally, we believe that prayer is essential, right? Hopefully we are a praying people. Paul commands us to pray without ceasing. We pray all the time, so therefore prayer is going to be a central part of our gathering. And so that's, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to see the part that prayer plays in our gatherings. Why do we do what we do? Why do we pray when we gather together? Well, we're going to answer that hopefully this morning. All right, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to read the whole passage here. Just listen to it. Uh, we're going to put, as I break it down, we'll put it up on the screen. But just, just listen to this passage and, and let it just sort of stir your heart before we dig into it here. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. All right, so here's the instruction this morning. And I'm going to say this phrase over and over again because I will be quite happy if you leave here and you've got this, okay? Because this is, this is the point of 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. Ready? Here it is. Pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. When we come together as a church, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to us, to Timothy, and ultimately to us, that we should engage ourselves in praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Paul says, first of all then, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So he says, first, this is really important. I I think what Paul means here, plain reading of the text is, prayer should be a very, very, very central part of our gatherings. Say, preaching is important, very important. But Paul doesn't say, first, when you gather together, preach. Singing, very important, love to sing hugely important. But Paul doesn't say, first then, when you gather together, sing. He says, first, pray. Real simple, y'all. 
I think we could say that if we gathered together and only prayed, God would not be displeased with us. God would be very pleased with that. So prayer is a very important part of our gatherings. <clears throat> Next, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men, for all people, okay? Uh, there's seven different words for prayer in the New Testament. He uses four of them here. He mentions supplications. Supplications are simply prayers that arise from need, all right? Prayers that, uh, desperate prayers that we pray because we recognize that there's something we need from God that we just can't do for ourselves, all right? So, so you could sort of parallel supplications with desperation, all right? And then he says prayers, and that's just the simple word that is used throughout the scriptures to talk about approaching God with reverence. Sometimes we come before the throne of grace and we bow down in awe. There, there are times when we are just moved with the majesty of God, and so we come and we bow before him. So, so we have desperation, we have awe, and then he says intercessions, okay? Now, intercessions is different from prayer in that it's, it's, a, it's an immediate sort of almost familiarity. It's, okay, so if prayers are recognizing the awesomeness of God and coming in and bowing before him, the, the intercessions picture the child bursting into his dad's office, doesn't care what's going on because he needs something right then, all right? That's intercession. That's just sort of bursting in on God, coming boldly before the throne and saying, God, I need this. I need this. I'm, I've got I've to share the gospel with this person. I need you to help me right now, all right? So we got desperation, awe, familiarity, and then thanksgiving, which is just very simple. We want to come with gratefulness. We want to remember the things that we have prayed for. I, I've been trying to do better in this in my personal life. I, I, last year, I started doing more to sort of write down the things that I was praying for. When people approach me from the congregation and say, pray for this, I write it down in a book so that I can look back and I can see where God has answered prayers and I can be thankful for those things, okay? So, Paul uses this to say that our prayers as a congregation, as the people of God, should be multifaceted. All right, so sometimes we're going to come in awe, sometimes we're going to come in desperation, sometimes we're going to come with familiarity, and sometimes we're just going to be thankful for the things he's done. All right, so hence, all kinds of prayer. Now look what he says. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions. Those two little words, all people, I think are the main thrust of this whole passage, all right? You could, you could circle those, you could underline those, you could highlight those in your Bible. He says it again in verse 4, speaking of God who desires all people to be saved, and he says it again in verse 6, Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, same word, all people. Three times in these six verses, Paul refers to all people, which means this. Our prayers should never be exclusive. Our prayers should never be exclusive. So the people of Israel, one of their besetting sins was exclusivism, inside, outside. Remember, we saw this over, over and over again in Luke last year. There, there, there are the people on the inside, and there are the people on the outside, and 
We don't pray for the people on the outside. We just pray for the people on the inside. And that's, that's more than just a besetting sin of the Israelites. It's kind of a besetting sin of God's people in all ages. It's that impulse to say, I don't want to pray for them. I don't have to pray for them. Or even, they don't deserve to be prayed for. But Paul says, when it comes to prayer, and it, when it comes to our activity together, when we gather together, we should be very inclusive. Everyone is in. By all people, Paul means all people. Now, he says we are even to pray for kings and all those who are in high positions. So you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, big deal. I'll pray for Donald Trump. I'll pray for Congress. I'll pray for the Supreme Court. I'll pray for our governor. I'll pray for our mayor. I don't have anything against those people. That doesn't sound hard to me. But let me tell you who the emperor was when Paul wrote this. It was a guy by the name of Nero, all right? Now, I'll bet, you know, ancient history, 10th grade world history, maybe that's been a while for some of you, but I'll bet if there's one thing you know about Nero, it is that he hated Christians. He was the first Roman emperor to persecute Christians, beginning in the mid-60s, and he came up with really creative ways to torture and persecute Christians. He crucified them, he would have them sewn into animal skins and then put them into arena and let the dogs attack them and kill them. He went so far as to light people on fire and put them on poles so that they would light his garden at night. This was a cruel man, okay? A few years after this, Nero himself would have Paul beheaded, okay? All right, so when Paul says pray for all people, just consider he's saying even pray for Nero. Pray for the guy who might catch you and set you on fire. Pray for the guy who put your family to death for their faith. So one of the unique things about us as Christians is that we pray for our enemies. That's what Paul's saying here. Pray for all people. Pray for your enemies. Jesus, Jesus says the same thing, Matthew 5, familiar passage. Verse 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So notice what Jesus says here. He says, do you love those who love you? Big deal. Everybody does that. Do you, do you pray for people who are like you? Eh, so what? What separates the love of Christ from everyone else is our willingness to love those who, love us, who don't love us. I really messed up that big point, didn't I? Hold on. Let's start that again. What separates the love of Christ from everyone else is our willingness to love those who don't love us. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Mercy. Mercy. It's all about mercy. We've been shown great mercy. And so we should be people who are driven to show mercy to others. Last week we saw that mercy motivated Paul. 
Bill had four points. Mercy motivates two. Mercy motivates two. Mercy motivates two. Well, this could be the fifth point. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 could be mercy motivates to prayer. Look back at 1 Timothy. I think it's up here. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. We looked at this last week. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. So mercy motivates us because we have been forgiven much and so therefore we are moved to show mercy to others. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we hated him, he died in our place. Now let's get just super practical here for a moment because we're all human in this room. And I know that the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind people right now for you. I've been living in this all week long, okay? So I know this is going on. I know right now for many of you, God is bringing people to mind. And you're thinking, how can I pray for that person? How could I possibly pray for that person? And the answer is simply to meditate on, to think about, to be saturated in the truths that we know in the scripture about what God has done for you. While we were still sinners, while I was still a sinner, while I was hateful towards Jesus, he died for me. He, he suffered punishment and death, excruciating punishment and death on a cross for my sake. That person I'm thinking of right now, that person you're thinking of right now does not deserve mercy, and yet neither did I. That's what motivates us to pray. So what are we praying? Well, in many cases, we are praying simply that that person would just come to Christ. This is evangelistic prayer. We're praying that person would come to Christ. And to what end? I don't know. We, we may not know until eternity. On the cross, Jesus prayed for all those people who were out there looking at him, shaming him as he was on the cross. Remember, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And what happens in Acts chapter 2? Peter preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people get saved. Do you think it's possible that some of the people who were standing around the cross that day were in that 3,000 who got saved a couple of months later. Do you think it's at all possible that that was the Father's answer to the Son's prayer on the cross? Think about Stephen. Stephen is stoned. Acts chapter 7. He preaches a sermon. He makes everybody mad. He looks up to heaven while they're throwing the boulders down at him, and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who is standing there holding the coats? The Apostle Paul. Who's writing this letter? The Apostle Paul. Y'all, we don't know what our prayers can produce. And I don't take this lightly. I know that some of you in this room have been hurt deeply. For some of you, praying for your enemy is not praying for somebody over there. 
praying for your enemy is, is praying for someone you once loved who hurt you deeply or, or, or praying for someone who you trusted who broke that trust. I'm not given to, uh, to long quotes up here except for the Bible, but uh, God, God brought this to my mind this week. If, if you've never read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, it's a really powerful story of mercy and forgiveness. So Corey Ten Boom, if you're, if you're new to the sort of Christian you know, 20th century history, uh, was a Christian in the Netherlands. Um, she lived in a house with her father and her sister. Her sister's name was Betsy, and her father was a watchmaker. But the thing that separated them out is they housed, hid Jews from the Nazis uh, during World War II. So the book is called The Hiding Place. So they would, they would hide the Jews in their home. Uh, they were discovered. Um, you know, interestingly, the six Jews who were being hidden in the house when they were discovered survived and, and escaped. Um, but they were sent to a concentration camp. Uh, Corey's father died in the concentration camp, and then Corey's sister, Betsy, died in the concentration camp 15 days before Corey was released. Uh, Corey writes, before she died, Betsy said, uh, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. So a few years later, Corey goes back to Germany, and she's speaking about the power of forgiveness in Germany, uh, and she says she finished the talk, and there was silence, and she said it often was in those days. Like, she would go and speak on forgiveness, and there was silence as people just sort of got up and left the room. Very, very difficult time. So I'm going to read her words here. This is, uh, this is from Corey herself. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you are. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since I, my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, and I would like to hear from your lips, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not, Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most dif difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who injure us. If I do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. 
And I knew, it was, I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had, come, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical stars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there in the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supplied the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into my joined hands. And then with healing warmth, seemed to flow my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Do you want to know God's love like that? Because it doesn't come naturally. We, we are sinners. It comes when we saturate our minds in the mercy and forgiveness of what we have received. And for some of you in this room, it may have to just start with a willingness to pray, God, just God, help me to want to pray. Maybe it needs to start there. Paul says next, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So there's this mistaken notion today that rage and anger is what is going to change our society. People on both sides, very troubled by our leaders, they're troubled by the oppression in the world, they're troubled by mistreatment of the weak, and and I, I am troubled. I'm troubled by much of what I see in our society today. And the result is what we have is a lot of angry people, angry people in the streets, Angry people at the Capitol, angry people on social media, angry people in the church, angry people in homes. These are real bad things, and they're being done by real bad people. But how should we as the church respond? How should we seek to change our nation and our neighborhoods and our churches and our homes? What should we do? And the answer, as you already know, I'm sure, is pray. We should pray. We should pray for people. Christians don't fight like the world fights. Our strength isn't in our ability to yell somebody down. Our strength is not in our ability to win an argument. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the weapons of our warfare, they're not of this world. Prayer is far more powerful than a snarky tweet. So we may live peaceful. I have a really bad translation of that. Where is that? So we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So does this mean that everybody's going to like us? No. Does it mean that we're never going to suffer persecution? Persecution? No. Does it mean that we're never going to suffer because of suffering that's brought on by other people? Absolutely not. What it means is that we can live, this is the promise, that we can live in peace and dignity knowing that the God of the universe is in control. And it means that as much as it depends on us, CBC, as much as it depends on our church, 
that we are going to have a reputation for godliness and peace among the people that we know. And it means that we as Christians are going to be known for peacemaking and not for conflict making. You know what the Bible says about anger? The Bible says that, that the anger of man does not accomplish the purposes of God. It doesn't. Your, your anger at that person who pulled out in front of you does nothing to accomplish the purposes of God. You can rage and, and give all kind of signs if you want. God's purposes are not going to be accomplished by that. The anger of man does not accomplish the purposes of God. It also says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. This is a Ephesians 4. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. So when we're living angry, all we're doing is giving Satan a foothold in our lives to just do as he pleases with our rage. So are you concerned about the direction of this country? Are you concerned about the direction of our city? Are you concerned about the direction of our churches, of our homes? Then pray. Pray for the president. Pray that he would know Jesus. Pray for the Congress people. Pray that they would know Jesus. Pray for our congressmen. And then rest. Live in peace. After you've prayed, get up and go live a godly and quiet life in society. And as much as we can, let's foster a good reputation for the people of CBC in this city. What if rather than angry emails to a congressman, what if you sent him an email that said, hey, just to let you know, I'm praying for you. I know it's a hard job. I, I know a lot of times you are having to pick between two really bad options. I'm praying for you. And I'm praying for you that you would know Jesus. You know, related to this, I hate abortion. I absolutely hate it. And I, I consider it to be a blight on this nation. I hope it becomes illegal. I hope that in my children's lifetime that they're putting up monuments to the deaths of unborn babies, like they do for the Holocaust. I, I hope that, okay? I pray about these things all the time. So every day on the way to school, we pass an abortion clinic. It's on 34th Street. It's between Abercorn and... Uh, Drayton. So we're going down Drayton. And every day, uh, me and my boys, we, somebody prays, God, shut, that, shut down that abortion clinic. God, end abortion in our country. God, you know, send your angels to guard those mothers who are going to show up there today. Well, I, I think I'm going to change that prayer as a result of this passage, because I want to begin to pray as we go by there, God, save those doctors. God, save the people who work there. Because it occurs to me, even from reading this passage, they're not my enemies. They, they don't deserve mercy, but neither do I. And so what better way to redeem a horrific situation than to see the people who are, who are leading that situation become followers of Jesus and, and, and totally just transform their lives? What if we see God end abortion by saving hundreds of abortion workers? That's even better. So when we gather together, we should pray. We should pray all sorts of prayer for all sorts of people, presidents, abortion doctors, neighbors, family members, ISIS, Kim Jong-un, co-workers, baristas, all people. Today at your lunch, what if rather than getting mad at that waitress, you pray for her and you pray that she will start to have a better day and you pray that Jesus would invade her life in a real way. So, why do we do this? Well, we do it because of mercy, but 
Paul gives us a couple of other reasons, and uh, I'm going to land this plane quickly here. He says this, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He says, first of all, it's good because it pleases God. It pleases God. Now, I don't know about y'all. I have a lot of struggles in my life. My life remains relatively disappointing to me, okay, in terms of my, like, relationship with Jesus. Quite frankly, I thought I would be further along right now than I am, all right? But I think that my desire wholeheartedly, and I, I trust yours as well, is I want to please God. I genuinely want to please God. At the end of my days, I want God to be pleased with me. He's my father, okay? Here is a way we can please God. If you're a follower of Jesus, simple good news, if you want to please God, start by praying for other people. Pray for people. Pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of of people. And if you do that, if you spend time each day praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, you can go to bed at night and you can know that God is pleased with the work that you've done because the word says it. God is pleased. So let's take it a step further. I want to belong to a church that pleases God. I want to belong to a church where our hearts are in line with God's heart. So how can we know for sure that God is pleased with us? Well, one of the ways is just that we're a church that prays all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. It's really pretty simple. Secondly, he says, because we want to love what our Father loves. You can just call this family resemblance. We, we pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because God really wants people to be saved. God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants people to be saved more than people want to be saved. This is just good old John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God wants people to be saved. If you're a Christian, God has given you a new heart. He is transforming your desires. And so since our Father loves to see people saved, then so should we. It's that simple. And I know some of you are thinking here, if God desires all men to be saved, why doesn't he always get what he desires? Does that mean that all people will be saved? First of all, just please... Hear what Paul is saying here. Don't, don't get caught up in a theological system. Paul is making a point. He is saying God desires all men to be saved, full stop. And so should we. Remember the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15? That the father anxiously looking for the son. The father is seeking sinners. He is, he is like the woman who is seeking the coins on the floor. He is like the shepherd who is going after the, long, the lost sheep. So, so God desires to see sinners saved, and so should we. But secondly, there is such a thing as human responsibility. And just because God desires that all people will be saved, it doesn't mean that all people want to be saved. Think of it this way, y'all. Does God desire that we not sin? Yes, he desires that we not sin. Do we sin? Yes, we sin. So there's, there's human responsibility here, there's, there's God's sovereignty, there's God's human responsibility. If, if you want to, to, to understand that better, you can make an appointment with me in like a thousand years and we'll go talk to Jesus and we'll try to figure that out together, okay? But let's just leave it at that. God desires that all people be saved. And then secondly, because everyone needs to hear the gospel. 
because everyone needs to hear the gospel. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We should pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because all people need to hear the gospel. All people need to hear the gospel. Very simple gospel statement here to close. There is only one God. There are many false gods, but there is only one true God. There's only one. And there is only one mediator between God and man. That true God and us, there is one mediator. And his name, he is a man. He is God, he is a man. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is like us in every way. He is our mediator. The the word mediator means one who intervenes. So his death made it possible that mankind can have fellowship with God. And this is a simple restatement of Jesus' words to his disciples. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So there is this gigantic chasm that is fixed between mankind and God. And Jesus is the bridge over that chasm. Our disobedience has separated us, but through Christ and his death, we can be reunited and we can know God. And it says he gave himself a ransom for all. The word ransom, very important word. Ransom means what is given in exchange for another as a price of redemption. So the picture is a price that was paid to buy freedom for a slave. So mankind was enslaved to sin. Jesus paid a ransom so that he could purchase our freedom. And notice again, it's the same word. A ransom for all people. Christ has paid that ransom for all people. But they can't be saved if they don't know. Y'all, there's one God. And there's one way to that God through a mediator, Jesus Christ. And he has paid a ransom for all people. But all people don't know about that. And they need to know. And that's why we pray. Paul closes by saying, For this I was appointed a preacher, apostle, I'm not lying, I'm, not telling, I'm telling the truth, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says, look, this is why I do what I do. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm writing. I believe this. So our Father wants us to be a church that prays all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. I started out this morning by asking the question, why do we do the things we do? Well, let's just, let's just say as we conclude here, we pray because we have received mercy, because it pleases God, and because it is the desire of his heart that men be saved. There are probably a lot of things that are done in churches, a lot of things that are worn, a lot of things that are done, and you're like, I don't know why they do that. But now, hopefully, when you leave here this morning, you can say, I know why we pray. I know why we pray when we gather together, because here's a clear explanation of why we pray. So I want to offer you a few practical steps this morning in, in, uh, for prayer in light of this passage. Number one, prayer training does start tonight at 6 p.m., God in his providence put this passage on this day. Really thankful for that. Um, Again, even if you didn't sign up, join us and let's pray together. I promise we'll be done by seven tonight. All right. Um, But come and uh, listen, we're going to have a time of teaching on prayer. And then we're going to just pray together every week for six weeks. Um, So we're looking forward to that. Number two, there is a prayer team 
that meets together as a ministry team here on this campus every single Sunday during second service. They meet over in the Gardens building. Travis West heads that up. If your heart has, has been sort of awakened to these things as a result of what I've spoken today, you can go and you can join that team and you can be a part of praying all kinds of things for all kinds of people in that room every single Sunday. And y'all, that is a very important ministry. That is not some like extra side ministry that somebody who can't do anything else can do. That is an essential ministry to the things that are happening in this room every single Sunday and the things that happen uh, as CBC goes out from here. Third, you can join a community group. Many of our community groups uh, spend lots of time praying together, praying for each other. So if you want to get more involved in being able to pray together, you can join a community group. Number four, in your private prayers, that's sort of a sub-application here, be a person who prays all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Pray more for people than you pray for things. I don't think it's a, like, it's a perfect, you know, zero to a hundred kind of thing, but if you read the prayers in the scriptures, it is a, an extreme, like, overwhelming amount more of, of, of prayer for people than it is for things, all right? So, so center your prayers around people. Um, if you don't know what to pray, just pray, pray for the people that God brings to mind. Be sensitive to the Spirit leading you to prayer for people. Often, oftentimes in the morning, God will just bring a friend to mind or bring a name to mind, and it's like, okay, I'll pray for that person. I don't know why, um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust the Spirit here. That's a, that's, a, that's a weird name to pop into my head, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for that person this morning. Pray for people you have a hard time loving. It, that'll, that'll change your heart. And then think often of God's mercy. If we're meditating on God's mercy, if you just left here today and spent a lot of time thinking about Paul's statements in, in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and his final you know, sort of landing place, you know, that the, I, the chief of sinners of whom I am I'm foremost, of sinner, he died for sinners of whom I am foremost, then that would be a, a long way down the road. To, to learning to be a person who has understood mercy and who is showing mercy to other people. As we close this morning, I want you to bow your heads, and I'm just going to ask you to do something. We, we don't often uh, do a lot of participatory prayer in this setting, but I, I'm going to assume, like, uh, like I said earlier, that God has brought people to mind while I've been praying. Maybe it's a people group. Maybe it's a whole nation of people. Maybe it's a person who's hurt you Maybe it's a person you've been holding a grudge against. But I'm going to invite you, just for a couple of quiet moments this morning, to pray for that person. Like I said earlier, maybe you, need, maybe you just need to ask the Lord to help you to pray for that person. And he'll answer that prayer. That's a God-honoring prayer. Or maybe you need to be like Corey Ten Boom, and you just need to do what God is calling you to do, uh, even if you don't feel like doing it this morning. So trust God and pray for a couple of moments. I'll close this out and the band will come up and trust God that he'll bless our obedience. Father, I pray <clears throat> that you would make us a praying church. I pray that as the world continues to seemingly spin out of control, that we would be reminded that it's not you're in control. You hold the hearts of kings you hold the hearts of our enemies. You hold the hearts of those who have hurt us. 
So Lord, I ask, I, I ask that you would make CBC a praying church. Lord, make us a church who prays all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And Lord, we will trust that that will bear fruit and that you will use those prayers somehow in your, in your mighty providence to accomplish your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.